Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, this week we have a case from Washington State, USA, and it's a really sad case as well. And it did go very, very cold for a couple of decades, but it eventually did get solved. References tonight are from the Longview Daily, the News Tribune, the Daily Advertiser. A lot of it, in fact most of it, is from court records, and it was inspired from the case when I saw it on Cold Case Files. Again, another Cold Case Files episode. Okay, so this is actually, like I said, another case I saw on Cold Case Files. And I saw it years back and it really struck me as one of the saddest cases I've ever covered. The victims were in their 80s. They had 14 grandkids and 14 great-grandkids. They'd been married for decades and they would invite friends from the local church for what they'd call potluck meals. I don't know. It must be just turn up, see what you get. I don't know. As usual, when I read from these court documents tonight, I'll edit them for clarity and flow. If I can get it out of my mouth, the flow. The couple, 83-year-old Wilhelmina or Minnie Marin and her 81-year-old husband, Ed Marin, lived on a 120-acre farm located at 2040 Highway 12 in Ethel. Now, that's a rural a rural area in Lewis County, Washington. Now, they grew Christmas trees on the farm for extra income. I guess it was their income. Minnie was previously married to George Hadala, who had passed away in the late 50s, and they raised their family on the farm at 2040 Highway 12. Minnie had four children, Hazel, Dennis or Denny, Dale and Delbert. After George passed away, Minnie married Ed and he moved into the residence located at Ethel. Now, Ed and Minnie were close to Minnie's children and had a lot of family gatherings. Ed and Minnie were in their 80s, as I said, but they were still active and they were active members of their local grange. They had a group of friends they played cards with and went to church every Sunday. Now, Minnie would host an annual party around Christmas time for a group of ladies who belonged to her church. Now, the luncheon, which the husbands were also invited to, was scheduled for December the 19th, and this is 1985. Hazel went over to Ed and Minnie's place on December the 17th to help Minnie clean up and decorate the house for the party. Now, Hazel next spoke to Ed and Minnie on the evening of December 18 to make sure they'd be okay without her help for this party. And it was be the last time Hazel spoke to her mother. Ed and Minnie were not typically early risers. They tended to sleep until 9am or later. I don't really call 9am late. Anyway... So let's get what into what was happening on the morning of December 19, 1985. Now, Denny picked up his son, Mike, for work at around 5.30am. Now, they noticed the lights on in Ed and Minnie's house. Ed and Minnie's farm is around 20 miles or 30-odd kilometres from the closest large town, Chahalas, 
And if you were driving through Chehalis and blinked, you'd pretty much miss it. It was a cold and foggy morning. Denny commented to Mike that he wondered why the lights were on so early. Denny and Mike figured Ed or Minnie must have got up to use the bathroom. Now, later that morning, between 7.30am and 8am, Marjorie Hadala and her sister, they drove past Ed and Minnie's place and noticed all the lights on in the house, and they thought that was unusual for that time of the morning. Marjorie also noticed a light-coloured van parked up by the shed and a man she didn't recognise standing outside. you think that they might stop, but they didn't. Anyway, Robert Lyons, he's a log truck driver who knew the Morrans and passed by their residence every day. He saw vehicles he didn't recognise in the driveway around 8am. Now, it was odd for them to have company over that early. One of the cars was a white full-size four-door sedan. Lindsay Centre, a log truck driver, he travelled past the residence between 8 and 9am. Mr. Centre saw two men walking westbound between Harms Road and the Morin's residence, carrying an object about three feet long, covered in a cloth. Now, Centre was suspicious because he believed the object could be a rifle. Nona Pierce, who lives diagonally opposite to the Morin's, saw a car pointed west with its lights on and at a weird angle near Ed Minnie's driveway. Miss Pierce was concerned Ed had accidentally backed up into someone in the fog and may need some assistance. Miss Pierce could see that there was a second car there as well. Now, she was about to walk over and check on the situation when the car pulled into Ed and Minnie's driveway. Miss Pierce heard voices and figured everything was okay. At around 9.30am, Patricia Hull, an employee of Sterling Savings, she receives a phone call from Ed. Now, Ed informed Miss Hull that he wanted to withdraw $8,500 from his bank account. Miss Hull told Ed she could get him a cheque for that amount, but Ed insisted on cash. Now, due to the amount of cash Ed was requesting, Miss Hull asked Diane Rasmussen to go to a commercial bank for the money because Sterling didn't have that much cash on hand outside of the vault. At around 9.30 to 9.45am, Merle Pickering saw a white car, possibly a Chevy 2 or a Nova, pull out of the Moran driveway. The car pulled out right in front of him and then drove out of sight. Ed, he arrived at the bank at Chehalis around 10.30am, but Miss Rasmussen hadn't yet returned the, with the cash from the commercial bank. Miss Hull told Ed to have a seat and asked where Minnie was because usually Minnie conducted the banking transactions and she'd have coffee and cookies while at the bank. Now Ed explained that Minnie wasn't feeling too well and he'll go out to the car and see if Minnie would like to come inside. Now Miss Rasmussen returned and Miss Hull went out to the parking lot to fetch Ed. Now before she could get to the car, Ed jumps out and they go into the bank. Now, while conducting the transaction, Ed explains to Miss Hull that he and Minnie were headed up north to purchase a car and they believed cash would make the transaction easier. Ed told Miss Hull that the kids were helping them with the purchase. Now, Miss Hull tried to talk Ed into a check, but he refused. He signed the withdrawal ticket and Miss Hull placed $8,500 in cash in a manila envelope. So, here we have a small town where everyone knows each other, 
and several witnesses driving past Ed and Miss Minnie's place, and they all noticed lights on earlier than normal. I mean, <laughs> this place is so small, the people actually know Ed and Minnie's normal wake-up times. I mean, this is a little bit incredible. Now, I have to say, though, a lot of people have noticed something not right, okay, on this morning. Now, they've seen strangers at their premises, and even the bank lady thinks it's weird for Ed to withdraw so much cash and for Minnie not to have come in. There's lights on too early in the morning. All this strange stuff's happening, but let's go on. So Minnie has this potluck lunch organised for the 19th of December 1985. Okay, now guests will show up and no one's home. Shirley Hadala, who's married to Danny and had a close relationship with Ed and Minnie, she gets a phone call from one of the ladies who was attending Minnie's luncheon. Now, the woman told Shirley there was no one at Ed and Minnie's. Now, it was unusual for him to miss something like this luncheon, so Shirley went to the house to check on Ed and Minnie. Shirley found the house locked and the car gone. Shirley called Delbert, who quickly arrived and entered the home through a back window. Ed and Minnie were not in the house. Shirley called Hazel. Now, Hazel contacted several people looking for Ed and Minnie, but no one had seen them. Now, when Hazel and Shirley went through the house, they knew something was wrong. Minnie's purse was still at the house and there were bank statements out all over the floor. They'd been in shoeboxes and these shoeboxes had been emptied out. Ed and Minnie were very private about their finances and they wouldn't leave bank statements on the bathroom floor or scattered around the house. They knew something was up. They called the police to report them as missing. The police responded to the Moran residence. It was clear there was no forced entry. The police saw the bank statement said it had been left out for all to see. Now, Minnie's purse looked as if it was purposely hidden, with newspaper placed over to conceal it. The police were informed that the blinds behind the Christmas tree were closed, and everyone said that was just not normal. Ed's watch was still in the bedroom. Now, he used to take his watch whenever he'd go out. And so the police began looking for Ed and Minnie. A Detective Austin was contacted at 7.30am on December 20, this is the next day, and told that the Moran vehicle has been found in the northeast corner of the Yardbirds parking lot in Chehalis. Now, Yardbirds, it's a marketplace with out of 50 unique vendors, food, auto repair, barber, art, antiques, collectibles, electronics, audios, clothing, videos, DVDs, and more. It's like this huge aircraft hangar type size thing. And it's got a massive outdoor parking lot. Now, Detective Austin arrived at the scene and he saw the windows were iced over. He couldn't see much blood because the red blanket found inside the car actually covered a lot of these bloodstains. But he did see blood. Detective Austin checked the trunk boot looking for the bodies of Ed Minnie. And when he opened it, He found nothing. There was blood throughout the car though and he saw that the blood had actually run out of the passenger door and dripped down the outside of the car. Detective Austin took extra precautions not to disturb the evidence. 
Now, the car was processed by Detective Richard Harrington and Washington State Patrol, and the crime scene technician was Roger Ellie. Now, after he received information about what was discovered in the car, Denny began searching for Ed and Minnie's bodies. So, that's so sad. You sort of, at this stage, your mum and dad are missing, but then you see a car full of blood, and now you think, well, come on guys, let's go and look for their bodies. As news got around, there were sightings of Ed and Minnie driving their car along Bunker Creek Road, which is just out of Chihalas in a westerly direction. At about 11.10am, a William Reisinger was working on his farm located on the 400 block of Bunker Creek Road. Now, Reisinger saw a green Chrysler Newport driving down Bunker Creek Road. Now, Reisinger attempted to contact the car, believing it was his mother and her boyfriend, only to find an older couple who appeared to be in their 70s in the front seat and a younger guy in the back seat. The man in the back seat who was wearing what appeared to be a green-coloured trench coat was sitting forward on the seat, leaning on both his elbows on the front seat. Now, back when I was a kid, that's how you used to get around. You have a bench seat in the front, bench seat at the back. No back seat seat belts at all. You just hang over the front of the front bench seat. Anyway, let's get on. Let's not worry about what I used to do. The car was going about 20 miles an hour, so it was going quite slow. The driver looked like Ed and had a solemn look on his face. So he's re- recognised this guy's Ed. Kenneth Powell, he was driving a skidder up Bunker Creek Road to a work site. The skidder drove about 10 miles per hour and all the cars would generally pass Well, whenever he was driving down the road. It was just going so slow. Now, while travelling up Bunker Creek Road, Powell saw a very large older car he believed had four doors. The car was following the skitter for an unusually long time because there were plenty of opportunities to pass. Now, the car eventually passed the skitter, but at an extremely slow speed, maybe at 20 miles per hour. Now, Powell could see the silhouette, silhouette, silhouette of a person in the back seat of the car. Now, five to 10 minutes later, the same older car came back down Bunker Creek Road. Now, there was an elderly couple in the front seat. The man was driving and the woman was sitting next to him. The man looked straight ahead, never looked up at Powell and had a real faraway look in his face. The woman also looked straight ahead. It was as though the man was looking through Powell as if in a trance with a distraught look on his face. Now, it was possible that Powell was near this Stearns Road when he saw the car the second time. Now, Ed, he would end up driving the car up this Stearns Road. Now, this is bitumen at the start, and then it turns into gravel. It's uh, like a logging road. So now we have sightings of Ed and Minnie in their car, acting a bit weird and accompanied by at least one man in the back seat. Now, when police became aware of these sightings, when these witnesses came forward, look, I just can't say. Obviously, at this point, of the day when they see this happening, there's no murder. There's there's nothing in the news. So these people are just seeing things. By the 24th of December, with Ed and Minnie still missing since the 19th, their bodies would be found. Michael Hornrider was driving around after work on December the 24th. He decided, due to his intoxication level, 
that he would drive the logging roads. Now, after driving a bit, he saw what he thought was a CPR doll on the side of the road, but the clothing didn't look like a CPR doll. He then saw a wedding ring, and he realised it was a person, and he ran back to his truck and raced down to the first house to call police. A Detective Harrington, Detective Austin and Detective Frank Bennett all responded to the scene, which was located on the Stearns Road, just off Bunker Creek Road. Now, like I said before, Stearns Road is for a short distance bitumen, but then it turns to gravel and it's just back, sort of backstreet logging roads. Now, at about 500 metres past where the road turns to gravel, near a fork in the road, there's two bodies. The detectives found some blood trails, a smaller blood trail and two larger blood trails. When they walked up, they saw Minnie's body. Ed's body was lying in the rough just off the road. His clothes were fully soaked in blood and he'd been dragged by his feet to that location. Minnie had also been dragged, which was evidenced by how her clothes were pushed up, her undergarments were showing and she'd lost one shoe. And that other shoe had already been found in the Morin car. There was a large amount of blood on Minnie's face and the right side of her clothing, which was consistent with what the detectives had discovered in the Morin's car. Heading back down Stearns Road towards Bunker Creek, there was a 28-foot blood trail that led to a blood pool and the trail that led to Minnie's body. The area between these two blood trails that led to Ed and Minnie's bodies was wide enough to fit the Morin car in. It was found that Minnie was shot with a sawn, sawn, off, a sawn off 12-gauge shotgun loaded with buckshot. She was shot in the left shoulder and neck. The gunshot ended Minnie's shoulder and literally destroyed her entire shoulder and lateral neck. She was shot from inside the car while it was still in motion. That's why these blood trails, these 28 foot blood trails either side of the car because the blood's actually pouring out the side of the car. Minnie's blood continued to drain through that open passenger side door as the car continued down the drive, right? Ed was hit in the head because he wouldn't get out of the car. The blows didn't kill Ed, who was in the driver's seat, and then he was shot in the back, just above the back at the top of the seat with the sawn-off 12-gauge shotgun, again loaded with buckshot. Now, how we know Ed was hit in the head would be because a witness was told this later on, but we haven't got there yet. Ed fell over to his right, but Minnie stopped him from falling all the way over onto the seat. Ed and Minnie were pulled out of the car. They were dragged into the bush in two different locations on the side of the road. How very sad. A couple of very active great-grandparents, brutally abducted, forced to withdraw a large chunk, if well, some of their savings at gunpoint, and then sensely murdered and dumped in the bush. What must have been going through their minds... Obviously, they'd been assured they'd probably be safe if they handed over the money. Just do what we say. Give us the money and you'll be right. They would have seen so many people as they passed them in cars. They must have just hoped someone would help. Minnie, she'd been getting ready for her luncheon. They were expecting a few guests. Christmas was just a week away. And then your life is totally turned upside down as our men, they just break into your house They're demanding all your money. Now, 
this went on for hours. And then that's it. Your life, your partner's life, they're just it's just ended. And your bodies are just dumped in the bush. That's how they spent their last hours together, terrified, thinking they just need to do what they're told and they'll probably be fine. Okay, so there are leads coming in from people who not only saw the car that day, but also from those that saw a guy hanging around not only Ed and Minnie's place, but several others near their place who'd had unusual contact with a guy just before the 19th. Now, from what it looked like, a guy had been knocking on doors in the area and the houses in the area were quite a long way apart. Close ones, maybe 200 metres or 200 yards away. But one woman told detectives that a guy knocked on her door and asked if her husband was home as he'd run out of fuel. He asked if he could go look around the back to find some. Now, this did freak her out a bit and she pointed him to another farm next door where he might be able to get some gas. She knew a bloke was there. Now, forensics on the car was pretty basic back in 1985. Fingerprints were found all over the car, but they would either be ruled out as Ed and Minnie's or family members. But detectives didn't rule out family members. As we all know in true crime, you start investigating those closest to the victims and make your way out from there. Now, Mike Hadler, now he was Denny's son. Now, Denny was a big big in logging around the area, but his son, Mike, had sort of lost a little bit in his ways, drinking, fighting, having run-ins with police. As there was no sign of forced entry into Ed and Minnie's place, detectives thought maybe, well, just maybe, it might be a family member. A family member might also know Ed and Minnie's that they've got some money in the bank and that it was readily available. As you can imagine, Mike was a bit pissed off with police putting so much attention and resources into investigating him when in his mind they should be looking for who actually did kill his grandparents. Now, investigators did have a person of interest after a witness came forward a couple of weeks after the killings. He was seen near Ed and Minnie's car walking away fast, holding what the witness described as a rifle wrapped in a white cloth, which she thought was strange. Now, he was 5 foot 10 tall with a slender build, fair skin, wavy hair, stubble and a moustache. He was wearing a dark-coloured stocking cap, or we call them beanies in the rest of the, <laughs> all over the rest of the world, a pea-green army-type jacket and work boots. I don't know, but... That probably describes half of the town. I really don't know. Now, they did a sketch of the suspect and they released that to media. But then they ended up putting the witnesses that they had under hypnosis and they released a different looking sketch later. It's a little bit confusing, but that's what they did. Anyway, detectives scouted around town and took colour photos of everyone and anyone who fit this description. They also took photos of anyone who had worked on Ed and Minnie's Christmas tree farm. They then shrank these photos down to about about baseball card size and photocopied it in black and white for distribution to people who called in with information. Now, the big problem here was that they printed photocopies of photocopies of photocopies. And it doesn't take long, maybe even one copy of a photocopy, before the images on the paper become so degraded, they just become dark, illegible messes. They're pretty much useless at that stage to show anybody. 
So that's what happened. At this stage, there was more than a dozen witnesses to Ed and Minnie's car being driven around town in broad daylight with one or more men in the back seat. But somehow, the case goes cold. Now, this case is going to be one of those if-only cases where if only someone had reacted to any of the multiple events that took place on the morning of the 19th of December, then maybe Ed and Minnie could have been saved from such a horrific end. Then, on April of 1990, over four years after the murders, police get a call from a guy saying his brother had been involved in a double murder. He'd been married to one of the granddaughters. The caller said that his brother had laughed about killing them because it was his ex-wife's grandparents. Now, this guy's name was Scott Coulter. Now, Coulter was quoted by his brother as saying, I got that bitch, I killed her grandparents and I got their savings too. Now, cops checked Calder out as he did have a criminal history, burglary, drug offences. Plus, he was in the area at the time. The cops used the Mr. Big, the Mr. Big technique on Scott called Uzcut or Unsolved Serious Crime Undercover Technique. This is a Canadian thing, this. Now, we've covered it before in the Daniel Morecambe episode. But here is a brief wiki definition. The Mr. Big Unsolved Serious Crime Undercover Technique is a covert investigation procedure used by undercover police to get confessions from suspects in cold cases. Police create a bullshit criminal organisation and then seduce the suspect into joining it. They build a relationship with the suspect gain their confidence, and then they get them to do a few jobs, criminal jobs for which they're paid. Once a suspect has become enmeshed in the criminal gang, they're persuaded to divulge information about their criminal history, usually as a prerequisite for being accepted as a member of the organisation. Now, Once a suspect confesses, police can use that information to help close the case. Well, Scott Calder was more than willing to tell the undercover police about him killing Ed and Minnie. Problem is, when he was asked how he did the murders, he got all the facts wrong about the case and could have told police more accurate information if he'd actually read the newspaper. So this massive leave lead went nowhere. Scott was a bullshit artist, but not a murderer. The case went cold again. Now, there's a lot of controversy about using this technique as you can get innocent people wanting to be in this crime gang that has parties, drugs and money, so they're just willing to confess to anything to be in the gang, even crimes they didn't commit. You also have the issue of police feeding feeding info to the suspect that probably or may not have been released to the public, and then they use that as a, only the real killer would have known that type of thing. The operations also, they're very expensive to operate. Now, there is a Rafe Burns case, which uses this technique that I am going to do in the future. That case, if you think of yourself, put yourself in the shoes of Rafe and Burns, it is just one of the scariest things you can ever imagine. Anyway, police still held Mike Hadala, Ed and Minnie's grandkid, as a suspect. He was really affected by by the murder of his grandparents and he never gave up trying to solve the case and thus clear his own name. In May of 2004, now we're talking 19 years after the murder, a new detective came to town, Bruce Kimsey. 
Now, he took the Ed and Minnie murder case under his wing. He wanted to solve it. He was sure he could solve it by going all over all the evidence again and analysing some of the evidence using the latest techniques. Now, when he gets to the photo lineup or the montages that have been made to show these witnesses, he saw how piss poor they'd been created. The original photos, which were colour, had been shrunken down to baseball card like size, like I said, photocopied again and again and again. And he just could see these dark botches. He couldn't identify anyone in the photos. Now, for me, this is probably one of the worst mistakes that was made at the time of the original investigation. How police could use such bad quality images or not even complain that the image was of such bad quality and then try and get better ones. I would have just sent it back to whoever gave it to me and said, what's this shit? This is bullshit. Where's... Go and get me another one. All I can say, it's either complete incompetence or just plain laziness. Anyway, Kimsey got the original photos, printed them out in colour each, a proper 10 by 8 size. He then called up original witnesses from the case that had previously been interviewed 20 years ago. Now, these witnesses had seen Ed and Minnie's car right on the day they were murdered. And now Kimsey was getting some results. People were picking suspects out of this photo lineup. Now at this stage, Mike Hadler was still a suspect, but Kimsey, he actually thought Ed and Minnie had multiple bank accounts and family members would have known that. But only one account had had money taken from it. So he thought that the perpetrator was more likely someone outside the family. Then on November the 12th, 2005, Mike Hadala is driving out of the town when he's recognised by an old school friend, Jake Shriver. Now, Jake, he was only 17 years old in 1985. Jake told Mike that something had been on his mind for 20 years and he couldn't keep it in any longer. He told Mike how he'd been in the car with his mother on the 19th of December 1985 when the Morin car pulled in front of them, but it was going really slow. He told his mum to pass the car, and she did. Inside the car, he saw Ed and Minnie in the front seat and two guys in the back seat, and he recognised them. They'd worked on Eddie, Ed and Minnie's Christmas tree farm before. It was Greg and Rick Rife. All these years, he hadn't told anyone a thing about seeing the Rife brothers in the car as he was scared for his and his family's lives. Now, a few days after the murders, Greg Reif had approached Jake and asked if he said anything to anyone. Greg then threatened Jake, telling him they would kill him and his family if he would ever speak to anyone about what he saw. To back this up, the Reif brothers would drive past his house daily, just putting the fear of God into him. He didn't know what to do and was terrified not only for himself, but for his family. So he said nothing for 20 years. But every day it had eaten him up inside. But he just had kept his mouth shut. Jace, Jake actually started packing heat from that day on. He carried a gun. So after getting that off his chest, Jake then goes and gives a statement to police. And this breaks the case wide open. Now before we go on, Jake wasn't the only one not to come forward with information about the Wright brothers. Plenty of others were fearful they too would end up dead, dragged into some bushland off a logging trail. The Wrights, they were just scum. So Jake, he's gone to police, made a statement. At about the same time, witnesses were also picking the Wright brothers out of these better 
photo lineups that Kimsey had pr- printed out. Mike Hadler does his own investigation and found out the Wright brothers had gone to Alaska. He'd suffered for 20 years and believed the police were never going to get justice for him and his family. He decided to go to Alaska and sort this rife raff out himself. After Jake's statement to police, along with witnesses picking the Wright brothers out of photo lineups, they now had enough evidence to sort out warrants and extradite Greg and Rick Rife. But who was going to get to them first? Mike Hadala tried finding them, but had no real luck. Anyone he asked either didn't know who they were, or if they did know who they were, didn't want to say anything. When the police finally had the warrants and ready to fly to Alaska to interview the Rife brothers, Greg Rife died. But his brother Rick was still alive. They flew to King Salmon, Alaska, where the remaining brother Rick lived. It wasn't Mike Hadala that killed Greg Rife. Rife just died. Mike finally calmed down and he ended up going back to his family. On July the 8th, 2012, nearly 17 years after Ed and Minnie were murdered, Rick Rife is arrested and extradited back to face justice. He was now an older and more decrepit man, wielding an oxygen cylinder that was hosed up his nose. Once townsfolk heard Rick had been arrested, a lot more of them started to come forward. They were terrified to do it beforehand, fearing they'd be killed. Now, the Rife brothers were just scum. Statements given to the police told of how just after Ed and Minnie were murdered, the Rife brothers turn up at a party after buying nearly $4,000 worth of cocaine and they were splashing it round. Friends had seen them before the murders with the same type of sawn-off shotgun used to kill the Morrens. There was now more than enough to convict the remaining brother, Rick. Just before the trial, Rick would be charged with child sex offences that happened in 1984 when the child was 9 and in 1986 when the child was 10. He had been investigated at the time but no charges were laid. What the fuck are these cops doing back then? Seems like anything that involved any effort at all, they would just sit there and eat fucking donuts. On July 6, 2012, the state charged Rick Rife with counts 1 and 2, murder in the first degree. Count three and four, kidnapping in the first degree. Counts five and six, robbery in the first degree. And count seven, burglary in the first degree. Rife was convicted on November the 18th, 2013, after a six-week jury trial resulted in guilty verdicts on all seven felony accounts. He got 103 years, and he's never confessed to who actually pulled the trigger. On the child rape charge, Well, it's a bit complex, but he did an Alford plea where he gave up some rights to appeal his murder conviction and all those other charges, and he was charged on a lesser charge, and so that was that. I guess it's not going to really make too much difference in the end, but it would have added up to six years extra on his sentence of 103 years. So, it took 27 years for justice and a dose of karma to take out Ricky Rife. His brother Greg died before he got his karma. I'm just amazed at how they weren't caught that afternoon they committed the murders, or at least shortly after. They were known scum by police, and anyone who knew them, even their friends, they knew they were scum. There were so many witnesses to them being in the car with Ed and Minnie. Many people knew that the Wright brothers had been spending big with money they shouldn't have had just after the murders. And what about on the morning of the abduction? How many people saw something wasn't right at the Morin house? 
Like I said at the start, this is one of those if-only cases where if only one person in a long chain of people had done something, this whole kidnapping plot of the rights would have been stopped. Then if only police had investigated it a bit better and if only people who knew the truth came forward. Now how's this for just another totally unacceptable fuck-up by a cop during the investigation? Deputy William Forth was at the intersection of Bunker Creek Road and Highway 6 when he saw a full-size green Chrysler coming towards him. Now, that's Ed and Minnie's car, okay? Now, Deputy Forth, he locked eyes with the man driving the Chrysler. The man who was white, in his 20s, had a stocking hat pulled down low. There There was dark hair coming out from under the hat and a beard that was not fully grown. There was a red blanket covering the backrest of the front seat of the car. Deputy Forth... Fourth, listen to this, he thought the man may have been involved in a burglary in the area. So he ended up pulling out and got behind the Chrysler. The man was sitting at the stop sign for an extended period of time, even though traffic was clear, and he was looking back in the rear view mirror at Deputy Fourth. Deputy Fourth saw fear in the man's eyes, as if he was deeply concerned that Deputy Fourth was behind him. And what did he do? Nothing, for fuck's sake. All he had to do was just pull this guy. Just check his license, registration, whatever they do. That's all he had to do. He would have seen blood (laughs) drenched throughout the car. It was dripping out the side of the fucking door. He would have just seen the gunshot damage in the front dash of the car. But he did nothing. I mean, I could go on and on and on with these witness accounts. There were more than 100 witnesses at trial, but I think you pretty much get the drift in the case. Thank God at least one of the rife scum got caught, even if it was decades too late. Okay, Islanders, that's about it for this week. What do you think? If you really start to read these court documents and these witness accounts, and there were so many I left out, you just think, why did these guys get away? virtually get away with it? Why weren't they caught within days? Jesus Christ. Okay, Island, that's about it for this week. I'd like to thank my patrons, past and present, for keeping the island's light on. Special thanks to Fen the Goblin, who's joined the island. Thank you so much. We've got a goblin on the island now. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Go to my website, True Crime Island, where you can stream each episode. If you don't want to use iTunes or a pod player, and I have links to merch, social media, and all that's there. You can also email me if you want to get in touch. We do have a promo for Tara. Tara Saraband's got a new podcast. You probably already know. But it's called The World's Dumbest Criminal. So I'll have that promo at the end of all this. And that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Did you hear about the Welsh tourists who got drunk and stole a penguin named Dirk from SeaWorld on the Gold Coast? 
Or the Canadian guy who tried to beat a breathalyzer test by eating his own underpants. Hey, I'm Tara Saraban from World's Dumbest Criminals, an upbeat podcast about deadbeat crims. Join me every Monday to hear about the most ridiculous, bizarre and downright stupid crimes and criminals in the world ever. Like the Australian man who put out an unsuccessful hit on his wife and freaked out when she crashed her own funeral. Or the Chinese woman who deliberately ran 49 red lights in her ex-boyfriend's car. World's Dumbest Criminals is available on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe if you don't want to miss any criminally stupid shenanigans.